0: The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for... The last three. So glad that you all have decided to join us in worship. For those of you in person and those of you online, we're grateful to have you. We're grateful to worship together. This is important, this gathering of God's people. We believe that God moves in a powerful way when we are gathered, that he speaks to us, he encourages us, and he's near to us with his presence in a unique way when we are connected With one another and worshiping him, not just personally, but corporately. We're going to see some of the importance of that actually in our passage tonight, which is in Mark chapter 8. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. If you uh, have the app, you can also click the notes icon and you will find the notes there and you can follow along as well. Also, the passages will be on the screen behind me. So we are picking up our story now in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is episode 8, and the title of the sermon is No Fake Love. Can I get an amen? No fake love. So let me kind of bring you up to speed. Last week, we saw Jesus speaking with the religious leaders of his day, and he begins to dismantle the oral tradition. So in Judaism, there is a tradition that's passed down orally, but it's also been written down by scribes as well. Which, which sought to regulate everyone's personal and corporate life. The reason that this tradition was created was to protect God's people and to help maintain their righteousness and their holiness so that they wouldn't break God's law, they regulated their life and added all of these extra rules and restrictions. Jesus last week begins to dismantle that. He breaks down those traditions, and he names them for what they are traditions. In fact, sometimes flawed traditions that lead people away from who God is and his heart because they're made by man, by humanity. And so Jesus breaks that down and elevates the importance of Scripture and continues forward to do more ministry. Jesus is in his public ministry. He has the disciples with him. People are gathering around him, and he goes over the next few days and the next sequence of events. He heals a woman uh, or a girl, actually, who is possessed with an unclean spirit. He then goes to heal somebody who is deaf. He feeds 4,000 people, which is more like 10,000 people because back in that time, they only counted the men with just a little bit of food. And then he also heals somebody who's blind. So Jesus' public ministry is in full swing, People are gathering around him. They want to see what he's going to do. He's constantly casting out the demonic. He is healing people that are lame or can't hear or can't see. He is preaching about the good news and the kingdom of God that is at hand. And then he is also dismantling and breaking down these traditions and widely held beliefs, not only of the religious leaders, but of All of God's people, all of the Jewish people. And that's what we're going to see today again in Mark chapter 8. So, as all of this is happening, what we see is that the puzzle pieces are beginning to come together for many people. Not just the disciples, but others. They begin to question who is Jesus? And some people say that he's Elijah or that he's some other prophet. They see that there's something special and unique and powerful about Jesus. Jesus then, right before this passage in Mark 8, looks to Peter, one of the disciples, and he says, Peter, who do you say I am? Peter responds rightly and says, you are the Christ. That word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. So Peter makes this proclamation in front of the other disciples and a crowd of people, and he says, you are the Messiah, the prophesied one in the Old Testament, the anointed one. And right after that, we pick up a very different interaction between Peter and between Jesus. So Peter has just proclaimed to Jesus and everyone around that he is the Christ. And then we read in verse 31 through 36 the following. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling to the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage is a, a pretty prominent passage in the church. If you have spent time in God's Word, if you spent time in church, you've probably heard this passage preached before. What I find interesting is oftentimes this passage is preached uh, separately. The take up your cross and follow Jesus is preached kind of on its own, and then maybe this section with Peter's interaction with Jesus, where he rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus responds back and rebukes him and says, set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of the world. But this all happens together, and it's really important to see why. Because Jesus is not only teaching Peter, but he's teaching the disciples, the crowd around him, and us something so fundamental for the Christian faith. So in verse 31, Jesus uses a title that he uses often for himself in the book of Mark, It's one of the most used titles for Jesus, and that is the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is meant to denote Jesus' humanity. See, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So right here, what Jesus is doing is putting together the puzzle pieces for us. Peter has just said that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God. So his divinity is being elevated and exalted. And then Jesus also says, I'm I'm the son of man. I'm fully man. And so when he's going to speak about his suffering and his death, he's going to experience real suffering and real death as a person. As someone who is fully human. He is the son of God and the son of man. He is Messiah. But he is also human. And so Jesus says that he himself, the son of man, must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed. Now, this is very off-putting to Peter. We know that because he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. But it is also off-putting and shocking, I imagine, to the rest of the crowd. Peter is kind of a voice for how everybody else feels. Because suffering and the Messiah, up until this point, had never been connected for God's people, for the Jewish people. They never saw that. See, 2,000 years later, we speak often about the prophecies in the Old Testament and how they reveal Jesus' suffering and his death, that he is the suffering servant. The book of Isaiah shows that very clearly. But for the Jewish people at this time in the first century, they did not see that. They did not believe that the Messiah would suffer. The anointed one would not be rejected. In particular, certainly not by the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders of the Jewish faith. They took those prophecies as applying to someone else. The servant of the Lord, but not the Messiah. Those things are not connected. Because here's how they viewed the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come and defeat evil and injustice and establish his kingdom that was going to make everything right. And the way he was going to do that was through power. By coming in power with influence, God's people would obviously accept him and everybody else would have a choice whether or not to surrender to the Messiah and be a part of his kingdom or to die. See, God's people have been oppressed for centuries and centuries, and their hope was that a Messiah was going to come and kick out all of the nations and the people that have been bringing evil and injustice and oppression to them. And so when Jesus says that he's the son of man, that he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophesied one in the Old Testament, and that he's going to suffer and die, Peter and everybody else is like, no, 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 that's not okay. That is not what we believe. Those are not the conditions under which the Messiah comes. That's not who you are. In fact, the word rebuke, when Peter says that he rebukes Jesus, that word is used oftentimes in relation to casting out of demons. So Peter is saying to Jesus, Jesus, cast those words out of your mouth. Don't say that. That is not okay. Cast it out. Because Messiah will not suffer. In fact, the belief was that a dead Messiah was a failed Messiah. And so Jesus is dismantling for them and breaking every expectation that they had for the Messiah, for the Son of God. He's shattering their understanding. And he says uh, something so important And I say this all the time, and I'm going to keep saying it. Every single word in Scripture is important. Don't run through it quickly. He says that the Messiah must suffer. Now, I think if Jesus would have said that the the Messiah will suffer, it would be more acceptable. Maybe a little bit more conversation, easier on the language. Because their belief will be, okay, there's, there's going to be some suffering because there's going to be some resistance and some hostility as you're establishing your kingdom, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. We understand that. But when Jesus says that he must suffer, what he is saying is that he has come to suffer. This is the plan for Jesus to suffer and be rejected and die. This is not okay. Okay. It's not okay at all because Jesus' posture is one of service, of giving away power. And the expectation was the Messiah was going to do the exact opposite, lead from a superior position. Hold to power, gain power, command people to fall in line and establish the kingdom physically on earth. Peter is not okay with this. You see, there are two types of love, and we all know this. There's two types of love. There's conditional love, and there's unconditional love. One of them is fake love. The other one is real love. Conditional love, obviously, being fake love. Unconditional love being real, true love. And we all know in this room the type of love we are giving to somebody else. We know it. We know if it's, at times, maybe unconditional or if it is conditional, which I believe is the more often, the, the more likely and consistent type of love that we give and also receive. Conditional love. So here's what fake love is like: this conditional love. It is not open, it is not vulnerable, it has certain conditions that need to be met, and it is focused on giving love to the other person so you can get back something from them. So you desire to feel valuable and of worth and dignified and cared for and loved. And so you give love to somebody with the hope and the intention that you're going to receive something back from them. It's really giving love to get something in return. It's focused on yourself. That's fake love. But then there's real love, real love which is unconditional is open and, and it is vulnerable because you know that you have to be open and vulnerable to get to know somebody else so that you can love them for their sake. Not for your needs, not so you can get something from them, but because you want to see their joy completed. You want to see their joy completed and so you love them for their sake. That is real love. But I think the truth is, if we're all honest, Most of the love that we give and most of the love that we receive and therefore settle for is fake love. We settle for fake love. Why? Because we all have needs. We have needs and we want them to be met and we don't know how else to have them met. And so we have this kind of transactional love, utilitarian love. I give love to receive in return. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's very rare, I think, at times where we're giving 100% and expecting zero in return. We may think that, but it's really like, I'm giving 75 and I want at least 25 back. It's this conditional love. We have conditions that need to be met. And Peter here, he is settling for fake love and he doesn't even know it. He's showing it, but he, I don't know if he knows it. In his head. Jesus is going to expose that. He for, for Peter, he needs the Messiah to fit his parameters. The Messiah needs to be strong, needs to hold to power, it's not to be rejected. Peter struggles with this. We know this because in the garden, when they're gonna take Peter, where they're gonna take Jesus when he's betrayed, what does Peter do? Picks up a sword, cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. He wants to fight. He is not okay with the Messiah being rejected and suffering and dying. This does not fit the conditions under which the Messiah is to come. And his understanding of the Messiah's love towards people is being affected here too because the Messiah is supposed to command. You need to perform. You need to believe. I mean, the Jewish faith with the oral tradition that Jesus... Jesus just dismantled a chapter before, was based upon all of these laws and restrictions so that you could perform for God, so that you could maintain your righteousness, so you could be holy, so that you'd be accepted. You can't break God's law to be a part of his kingdom. So the conditions are not being met. He has no concept of of unconditional love. How, How can that be? How can you break God's law and be unrighteous and, and not understand and not fight for what is right and still be loved by God, still be accepted by the Messiah that doesn't work. This suffering, this rejection, this death does not work. It doesn't mesh with him. See, that the Messiah needs to demand loyalty and respect, not suffer and die. That's a criminal's death. He can't fathom this but Jesus does not operate off of conditional love. Rather, he displays and he shows and he gives unconditional love and praise Jesus for the strength and the challenge that he gives to Peter, the disciples of crowd, and to us. He is very serious about Peter and everybody there surrounding at that moment and also us tonight, understanding God's love. Jesus is not playing any games He pulls Peter aside, actually says, in in response, actually, to what Peter has said, everyone can hear. Jesus looks to Peter and he says this in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, see, he's serious. He wants people to get it. He rebuked him, same language. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's what Jesus' response is. Peter, your thinking is satanic. You have satanic thinking. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are setting your mind on the things of man. When you're considering the Messiah, you're not thinking from God's vision. You don't understand God's love you are thinking about this fake love that you have settled for that is conditional and has all of these restrictions and expectations and parameters that must be met. You you have satanic thinking. Get behind me. Get out of here with that. That is not the love of God. That is not the Messiah's intention or his mission. I must suffer and I must be rejected and I must die. He's not setting his mind on the things of God. His understanding of God's love is so small, so challenging to Peter, but also to us. Here's a question that you have to ask yourself. Where are you setting your mind? Where are you setting your mind? See, that's what his accusation of Peter is. When when Peter is angry and shocked and upset and he says, Jesus, cast those words out of your mouth, Jesus' response is you have satanic thinking because you're placing your mind on the things of the world. Where are you setting your mind? In particular, on love. What is your concept of love? What type of love are you showing other people? What type of love do you show God? Here's a cycle that I think that we kind of all experience. The cycle of love goes like this. When we feel established and secure and at peace and our hope is set and, and there's happiness and contentment in our life, we have the ability then to show unconditional love to other people. Why? Because our needs are being met. We feel as if we're receiving the very things that we need. We're being cared for, we're being respected, we're being honored, we're being loved where all of our needs are being met, so we can now show unconditional real love to people and not expect anything in return. But that doesn't last long. Our needs are ever-growing and ever-changing. And so what happens is we move from a place of security and hope and peace to a place where we feel anxious, we feel nervous, we feel pressured, we feel stressed. We're not receiving the things that we need And and so we have this kind of hole and this kind of gap in our soul. And so now we revert back to that more common love, which is fake love. So we show love to people. We give attention to people. We pour into people because we're trying to get something in return so we can feel secure again and have have hope and peace. We have this cycle that keeps spinning over and over again. When our needs are not met by others or God, and our conditions are not being upheld, we respond with this kind of fake love. And what happens oftentimes when we sit in that place for too long is that those people that we are showing love to and not getting in return what we need from them, do you know what we do? We distance ourselves from them. We ignore them. We reject them. Because we're not getting from them what we need back. And we do the same thing to God. When things are going well with God, are really just well in our life. If things are going well in our life, then they're kind of going well with God. Blessings, contentment, jobs going well, relationships, everything's working out. You know, me and God are good. But once things kind of are struggling and there's a lot happening, we're confused and this prayer's not being answered and all these things are happening, we're not receiving from God what we think we need from him, well, then we distance ourselves from God, question God, reject God. The cycle repeats with God as well. Peter's conditions for Jesus as the Messiah are not being met. He can't fathom that the Messiah is also the Son of Man that must suffer, be rejected, and be killed. There's a question. And I think this is such an important question to ask. And it's the question that I believe that Jesus is getting at here. And he's going to develop and put forward time and time again in his public ministry all the way to his death and resurrection. And that is this. Where are you looking for love? Where are you looking for love? Because I'm going to tell you the type of love that you need. I don't know you, but I know the type of love that you need. Because everyone needs the same type of love. You need to receive love from someone who doesn't need you. Who doesn't need you to give them anything in return. Someone who is fully secure and established and full of hope and peace and joy. They can give you love and they don't need anything back from you. That is the person that you need to receive love from because then it's radical love. It's vulnerable love. It is unconditional love. It's the love that we need when we just know that someone is loving us for our sake not because we're performing or providing for them or we met their conditions. They're just showing us love because they truly have real love for us. That is the type of love that we all need because when you receive that type of unconditional love, guess what it does for you? It makes you feel secure. Your hope is set. You're full of peace. Your needs are being met because of that love that is being given to you so you can now show that same type of love to other people because you're in a place of security. You're being loved. That's life-changing love. Where do you find this type of love? Yell it out. Where do you find that type of love? I'm going to sit here, say it out loud. It's, this, it's the answer that you're supposed to give in church all the time. There we go. Amen. Can I get an amen to Jesus? Amen. amen. Amen in the chat. The reason I wanted you to say that, whether you said it loud or quietly or just kind of, Jesus, like that. Whatever you were to is because I want you to understand something. That is not supposed to just be a response that comes out of your mouth. Just something that your lips utter. Yeah, I know. The type of love I'm supposed to receive is from God. It's from Jesus. Listen, God does not need you. Do you know that? Doesn't need you, doesn't need me. We believe that God is one essence, three persons. The three persons of God are Father, Son, and Spirit. And God has been living, it's within Himself, perfectly loving Himself. Father, Son, and Spirit knowing and loving each other perfectly for all of eternity. In perfect community, there is no need or lack. God did not create you. God did not create this world because he needs anything from us. He doesn't need anything from you, but he wants to give everything to you. It is a type of love that is so hard for us to understand because it's a love that comes from a place of perfect contentment. Just out of his joy, he created you, and he created this world, and he wants to give everything to you. In fact, so much so that Jesus was born, and born so that he would suffer and die for you. He must suffer. He must be rejected, and he must die so that you can receive the love of God that you don't deserve, that you haven't performed for, and that you can do nothing in response to God for him to say, okay, well, now I'm going to give it to you. No. God just wants to love you for your sake because you are in Christ who died so that you might live. You know a question I get asked all the time, and it's a foundational question for you to be able to answer, is this. I know God loves me. I know that the Bible speaks about God's love. And then I know that I'm supposed to believe in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And then I experience the love of God and the grace of God. I'm forgiven of sin. But why did Jesus have to die? Why must he suffer and be killed? What, couldn't there have been a different way? Well, here's the answer. Why must Jesus suffer and die? Because a debt is owed. A debt is owed. Now, when we talk about debt, even saying that word, I think in 2022, we think about student loan debt. Yeah, I had a response on that one. Mortgage, car payment. We think in economical terms. Think kind of with economics, debt, financial debt. But debt is varied. See, a debt is established whenever something is broken or stolen. Any, anytime something is broken or something is stolen, there's a debt. Let me give you an example. You need to borrow a car. So you say, Carter, can I borrow your car? I say, okay, borrow my car for the day. Begin to drive around. You've got to run errands. You've got to do different things. You're in a parking lot. It's hectic in Miami, so you're stressed out driving. You know how it is. You're pulling out of the parking lot, and you run into a pole. Now there's a big dent in the back of my car, and you feel horrible. You come back to my house, you drop it off, you say, Hey, listen, thank you so much for letting me borrow the car, but here's the deal. Made a big mistake. I hit a pole, go back, look at it. There's a massive dent in the back of the car. There's gonna be a lot of body work that's gonna have to take place. The lights are broken. I have two options because a debt has been established. The car's been broken. Option A is I say, Listen, I'm so sorry. But you have to pay for it. You hit it. You're borrowing my car is a kind gesture to let you borrow it. But you hit the pole. You're gonna have to pay for it. Let's go to the body shop. Pull it. Take out a credit card. You know, I don't know credit card debt. We have to do that. But my debt's gonna get paid for. It. That's option A. Option B is I say I'm so sorry. I know it's really stressful. Don't worry about it. I'll handle it. Now. Even though I have said, don't worry about it, I will handle it, there is still a debt, and I have to pay for it now. I have to absorb it. So I have two options. I can either pay for it myself and cancel out the debt, or I can just drive around with a big dent in the back of the car, knowing that the car is now depreciated in value and angry all the time. I have those choices. But a debt has been established. It has to be paid for can't just ignore it. It's going back to us. There's a debt that we owe. A debt is owed to God, which is the debt of sin. See, God, out of his joy and creativity, made this world and everything in it, including you and me. But we have broken God's law. We have stolen God's voice and sought to project our own voice. We have harmed his creation and and affected the image that God has placed within us and distorted it. We have sought to worship everything else but God himself who's worthy of all of our worship. We have established a debt between us and God because of our sin. Because God is perfectly holy and sin cannot enter the equation. He's perfectly good and perfectly holy, and we are not that, and those things don't mix. It's oil and water. There's a debt established, and there's two options. Option A is you pay for the, you pay the price of the debt. That's why Scripture says that the penalty or the debt of sin is death and separation from God. Because sin and God do not mix Sin deserves death and separation from God. That's option A, you pay for it yourself. Option B, which is what Jesus is teaching and what Jesus' message of the kingdom is about for you and for me, and this is the good news of the gospel, is that God absorbs your debt. He takes it and he pays for it. He doesn't just leave it unfixed so it's unsightly and unseemly. He pays for it. This is why Jesus must suffer and be rejected and killed, because he pays for your debt. He dies the death you deserve, and he's also separated from God, so you don't have to be. Why do you think Jesus on the cross, when he's paying for your sins, says, Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, when Jesus has housed your sin in his body, and he is paying for it with his death, the death that you should be paying for, God the Father turns his back on Jesus so that he is separated for a moment, for a time, from God the Father so that you don't have to be. He paid for your debt. He absorbed it. He said, I will handle it. You see, this is the unconditional love of God that Jesus is trying to put forward. He must suffer and be rejected and killed. So you don't have to suffer and be rejected and killed. This is the Messiah. This is the debt that Jesus paid. One of the most famous verses that the people quote, it comes out of Jesus' lips. He says, I have come to make your joy complete. Now, do I think that God is interested in your happiness? Yes, but I think that that statement is so much deeper than that. See, when Jesus says that I have come to make your joy complete, what he is saying is that I have come to fill all of your needs, to give you the very type of love that you are seeking in every other relationship and in every other place so that your love tank can be full, that your joy will be complete and established So you won't have need to receive back from every other person what you can get from me. That you can experience unconditional love and not the conditional love of others. I also believe that this is why scripture says that we are to be known by our what? Love. Church, we are to be known by our love. Why? Because, listen, we're the only people in the world that have the ability to show real love to people, unconditional love to people. Why? Because we're the only people that claim a God that gives unconditional love. Every other religion and spiritual movement in the world claims that you will get something from their version of God or enlightenment or mindfulness or awakening by doing certain things. We're the only faith in the world that says there's a God who loves you unconditionally and wants to give it to you. Wants to fill your your joy. Not because you've done anything, because you can do nothing. You have actually already broken every condition. So let God give you unconditional love. We're the only people that can truly be known by radical, vulnerable, unconditional love because we have a God that loves unconditionally. And that gives some color to the very last thing that Jesus says. As he's saying this and kind of establishing this with Peter, it says that he looks at his disciples and the crowd and he says this very famous verse. He calls on, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus gives this corporate application. You read that and you think, okay, is Jesus saying that I have to lose my life? Like literally lose my life? Now some people do lose their life for Jesus' sake. The church is built upon these people. The blood of the martyrs established the church. All the disciples and apostles except for one were brutally killed for their faith. So that is true, but this is more complex than physically losing your life. So that word life is the word psyche in Greek. It's where we get the word psychology. It denotes identity and selfhood. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to save your identity, you will lose it. But if you lose your identity for my sake, Jesus and the gospel, you will save it. Isn't that interesting? If you seek to save your identity and your selfhood, you're going to lose it. But if you lose yourself and your identity, in Christ and his gospel, you will save it. Let me say, how do I seek to save my identity? Jesus says in the very next verse, you seek to gain the whole world. That is how we try to save our identity and to build ourselves up. We try to do it through career and romance and beauty and fame and approval. Do it through our children There are all types of things that we set up and we try to gain in life to fill the needs that we have, to fill up our joy, and we live vicariously through these things. And what happens when we're not experiencing and receiving from the relationships and career and approval and fame and wealth, if we're not receiving from those things, what we need, what happens? It affects our psyche. It affects our life. Jesus is saying, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, if you stop trying to live vicariously through other people and other things, and you let go of your life, you bow and surrender before me and find your identity within me and the gospel, you're going to save your life. See, this is what it means, church, to follow Jesus, to take up your cross deny yourself, it's denying the world that wants to call you to to claim all these things and build your life upon them, denying your identity and finding your identity in Christ, taking the cross, which is the emblem and the sign of Jesus' suffering, that he must suffer and be killed for you, so that you don't have to, you take that on yourself and you follow Jesus. That is how you save your life. This is how you set your mind on the things of God. I want to close with an application. I think it's pretty simple. How do you follow Jesus day in and day out? That verse, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. How do you do that day in and day out? Three things. The first is this. You bow your identity before God in praise and worship and prayer. You see, this is why this matters. It's why gathering on Sunday nights is not meant to just be a tradition. Because when you gather with God's people, what we are, are enacting is the story and the promises of the gospel. We sing songs that are declaring that we are bowing our identity and our self before God. We're receiving the promises of God over us as they come from our lips. We are praying together, believing that we are God's people, all invited to be God's people because of God's unconditional love, not because we're superior. That's why our slogan on the front of the church says, Belong Before You Believe, because there is no superiority here in this church. Everyone is welcome to experience the unconditional love of God. And this is why you also should be spending time with God personally on your own. Praising God and worshiping God and praying to God and saying, God, I, I struggle with wanting to build my life on the things of the world. Let me lay that aside. Let me set my mind on you and build my life upon you. Bowing consistently day in and day out in praise and worship and prayer before God. Secondly is taking the cross. That's how you deny yourself. Secondly, you take the cross. You know what that means? Preaching the gospel to yourself every single day reminding yourself that Jesus had to suffer and be rejected and killed so you don't have to. You have to remind yourself of that, church, that God loves you unconditionally and the cross tells you that. I have a tattoo of the cross right here which is, comes from the verse that speaks about by Jesus' wounds we are healed. Why do I have that? Because I want to see that every single day that I am healed because of the cross. I'm not rejected. I don't have to suffer. I will not die because Jesus did for me. Take the cross. And then lastly, follow Jesus. What does that mean? Follow his identity because you're losing your identity and you're finding your identity in Jesus, which means you should be a humble servant. You should be willing to give away power. You should be willing to suffer for the sake of somebody else. And you should also be looking to extend real love to people. Listen, I want to get an amen after this. I want us to be known for a church that has no fake love. Amen? No fake love. I'm tired of fake love. May we be a church that gives real love to people, is authentic and real. Why? Not because we have the ability in and of ourselves. No, we do not. We will fail. But because we are bowing ourselves before our king, we are reminding ourselves of his love, we are taking the cross every day. So we give real love to people. May we be known by that type of love in this city.